Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Thank you for being here to worship with us at the Vista. We are always glad to have you. If you are uh, new or just joining us for the first time, or the first time in a while, um, we're doing things a little bit different this summer. Um, normally, we do a, kind of a full worship set up front, three or four songs. We might do, then we do one kind of at the end. Um, we're walking through the Psalms this summer in a series called Summer in the Psalms. I say walking through. It's more of a, a hop, skip, and a jump through the Psalms, if you will, uh, kind of hitting some different ones throughout the summer. But one thing we said as we started the series off is that uh, typically and historically in most churches, you have um, some singing, some worship. Um, that sort of prepares your heart for then hearing from the Word of God. Uh, Psalms in itself is a worship book. It's a, uh, you can call it kind of an Old Testament hymnal, if you will. And so we thought, sure, worship does prepare our hearts to hear from the Word of God, but also the Word of God prepares our hearts to worship. And so we're, we're kind of changing it up a little bit and doing the sermon um, right in the middle of the worship set, if you will. So we'll do some, some more worship here in a little bit. Last week, Sarah did a fantastic job walking us through what is the most popular psalm um, and arguably the most popular text of Scripture anywhere in the Bible. Last week, um, when we, she looked at Psalm 23, um, this idea that God is our shepherd, which makes us the sheep and um, everything that that means. And, and, and she did a great job of kind of unpacking Psalm 23 for us. What I wanted to do over the next couple weeks is I wanted to take a look at the psalm right before it and the psalm right after it, okay? And so those are two that are, I mean, they've got some really important, valuable lessons for us, but they often get overlooked because rightly, I mean, Psalm 23 is, uh, is such, a, such a big one that we sort of focus on. And so today, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 22. Um, you can turn there, um, Psalm 22. Psalm 22, I think, is, um, I think it's one of the most interesting of all of the psalms um, for, for several reasons. Um, but one of the big ones is as you walk through Psalm 22, one thing you'll notice is the first half of the psalm is just a wildly different tone than the second half of the psalm. I mentioned that David, who is the author of many of the psalms, he just sort of has this Jekyll and Hyde nature to him, right? Like David in a moment will go from God where are you and why are you not listening to me? And, and, and in the next verse, he's like, I praise you because you're amazing and I will always praise you. And so you just kind of see this, this drastic change in tone like on a dime. And Psalm 22 is, is classic David in that regard. The, the first half of the psalm is, is full of uh, despair and frustration and sorrow and grief and pain and hurt. And then all of a sudden, like halfway through, it just shifts. And the second half of the psalm is all praise and worship and hope and confidence in God. And I don't know about you, but like I read that and it just kind of makes me feel better about my own spiritual life. Because if we're honest, that's kind of the nature of a lot of us, isn't it? It's not all great all the time. It's not all bad all the time. That's called life. It's, it's a little bit of a roller coaster, right? It's, it's ups and downs. So the fact that David in one psalm changes that drastically actually gives me a little bit of confidence. Uh, a, to know that that's okay. Like God's not scared of that. We don't have to kind of push back against that sorrow or being honest with God. David, David does that beautifully in the psalms. And so what I want to do is read through the first half of Psalm 22, kind of unpack a couple of really big ideas with you, some lessons maybe to learn, and then we'll do the same thing with the, with the back half of Psalm 22. So here we go, Psalm 22, beginning in verse 1. David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from saving me from the, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, I am not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint, and my heart is like wax. It melts within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to my jaw. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, and they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horn of the wild oxen. So that's the first half, man. It's, uh, whew, that's a lot. It's pretty, pretty weighty. You can just feel the, the angst in David's voice there. He's crying out to God. He's asking God, where are you? And there's pain and there's hurt and there's suffering going on. And the first big idea as I read through Psalm 22, this first half, and reminded that David is the author of this, and I'm also reminded that David was called a man after God's own heart, which means as you read about David's life, David had an unbelievable faith, right? David had a deep abiding faith in God. We saw it as a shepherd boy when he trusted in God to deliver him from the hands of the giant Goliath, right? And all through David's life, you see him just honestly pouring his heart out to God. He goes to God in prayer. He worships God, and he writes some of the most amazing worship literature that we have in the Bible. Make no mistake, David had a deep and abiding faith in God. And so what, when I read the first part of Psalm 22, it's just a really important reminder that a deep faith, having a deep faith in God is not some guarantee that you will not have seasons of suffering and pain and hurt and maybe even seasons of the silence of God at times in your life. Deep faith is not a guarantee that you won't have seasons of suffering or even experience the silence of God in your life. I don't know where certain lanes of Christianity get off on this. Um, You've heard me and Austin both talk about the the pitfall, if you will, um, of what's called the prosperity gospel, where there's this sort of teaching that if you just have deep abiding faith that, you know, um, you'll, you'll be healthy and, and you won't have all the, the health problems or, or, or you'll be, you know, somehow that God's will for everyone is that they, they have much and uh, material possessions. And again, I, I hope you know by now our heart, and you've heard us talk about this, like that's just not a teaching of the Bible, really. Um, but there's another lane that's It's not quite that, but it's just as dangerous in my opinion. And that is the lane that says, if you just have a deep abiding faith in God and a a good good outlook, a positive attitude, 
that, um, that again, that life will just go really well for you. It's kind of, they call it kind of a victorious Christian living. You ever hear that, right? The victorious Christian living idea that, again, if you just have a positive outlook and, and your faith is deep enough that you'll live victoriously in life and turn that frown upside down. That's God's will for you, right? Like you just be happy and joyful and, and you don't have all the problems. You don't dwell on your problems. And, and, and so there's this lane, again, that I think is also dangerous because, again, I, I don't know where, where they get that. If you've taken the Bible seriously and you read through Scripture, I don't know where you, you kind of get this overarching idea that suffering and pain and hurt will somehow not, not be part of your life. Um, man, as I read through Scripture, you look, again, David, uh, most famous king, person really in the whole Old Testament, deep abiding faith in God, suffered greatly and experienced the silence of God at times in his life. Um, you get into all the prophets. You, you read about the prophets, and many of them, man, depression. They just, they struggled. They struggled with pain and hurt in life. In the New Testament, John the Baptist, Jesus said, was the greatest that's ever lived. Uh, yeah, he was killed in prison. All of the disciples die a martyr's death. All of them. Every single one of the disciples die for their faith earlier, earlier than, they, than they should. The Apostle Paul was beheaded. Um, no one's going, man, you know, what, you know what those guys need? You know what the Apostle Paul needed was a deeper faith in God. <laughs> like no one, no one looks at the Apostle Paul and thinks, that guy just needs more faith. No. I look at the Apostle Paul and go, man, if I could just have a fraction of that guy's faith, that would be awesome, right? And so this idea that somehow if we just trust God enough, that suffering will not be a part of our life is just not a biblical idea. We all experience suffering in our lives, every single person. No one is immune from it. It is a universal human experience because we live in a broken, fallen world where suffering is a reality. There's all kinds of suffering. There's small suffering, large suffering. I mean, there's, there's little things when things just don't go our way, and you, might, you probably won't even consider it suffering, but you go through days where, man, you just have aches and pains. You can't sleep well at night, man. You, you sprain your ankle, like you, you, you know, just little, little stuff that happens, right? You, your, your team lost again, right? Like it's just, there's things that just don't go right. It's all small stuff, not a big deal, but then there's, there's other times and seasons where it's, Man, the pain and the suffering just feels like it's too much to bear. It's the gut punch. When you get the, you get the diagnosis that you, didn't, you weren't ready for. You get the divorce that you didn't see coming and just tears the family apart. You struggle through abuse. You lose the job, the career that you had planned on your whole life and there's financial bind. You have the loss of a loved one that just tears your heart out. Man, there are, there's suffering in life that is just a gut punch. And it's real, it's real hurt and it's real pain and it's real suffering. And again, no one is immune from it, but David reminds us that somehow just having a deeper faith doesn't mean that those things aren't gonna be a part of your life. I've talked to some of you that have an amazing faith and you've talked to me about, man, sometimes I feel like God's just distant. I feel like, I feel like my prayers aren't getting above, above the roof. Anybody ever felt like that? I feel like, man, I'm, I'm talking and I'm crying out to God, but I'm not hearing anything back. And you feel like this moment of silence that God's just kind of bringing you through this desert season. It happens. It happens. And a deep abiding faith is not a guarantee that those things won't happen. David reminds us of that in the first half of the psalm. The second thing that I noticed, though, is, um, and the, the kind of the big idea that I wrote down, what David reminds me of also is that um, your feelings should not dictate, should not always dictate your actions. Here's what I want you to notice, that when, when God seems silent, 
when God seems silent in the text, David keeps talking to God. You notice that? David keeps pouring his heart out. God's not responding. It's just David pouring his heart out. But listen, when we go through seasons of pain, hurt, and suffering, when there's the silence of God, I know that sometimes the last thing you feel like doing is continuing to pray and continuing to read your Bible and continuing to, you know, get around God's people in community and everybody seems happy and continuing to worship and praise. When you're going through a very difficult season of hurt and pain and suffering, sometimes the last thing you feel like doing is, is continuing to to pursue God, but that's what David does. David is in a season of suffering. He feels like God is distant and God's not hearing, and I'm sure David doesn't feel like continuing to worship and seek after God, and yet when God is silent, David keeps crying out to God, and David continues to worship, continues to worship. And it's just a reminder that, again, what's good for us is not to always be driven by our feelings. In fact, I would say it this way, like, if you're someone that lets your feelings dictate your actions all the time, that is a, that's a pretty selfish way to go through life, right? Like, how do you think your marriage would go if you just let your feelings dictate your actions all the time, right? Only do what you feel like doing. Wow, right? Probably, probably not great, right? Probably not great because, listen, what it means to be a Christian spouse is, is mutual sacrifice, what it means to be a parent is, is sacrifice. That means if you're going to be a good spouse or a good parent, then, then you can't sort of coast through only doing what you want. It means you've got to be willing to do things even when you don't feel like doing them, right? So, so going through life, letting your feelings always dictate your actions is, is, is going to be a very selfish way to live life. And it's the same is true spiritually, when you're going through the ringer, when you're having a lot of suffering, I know that the last thing you may feel like doing is continuing to praise, continuing to worship, continuing to pray, continuing to get in the word, and yet that's exactly what we often need in the midst of suffering and pain. David doesn't let his feelings dictate his actions. When God is silent, David keeps speaking. As I mentioned, the second half of Psalm 22 all of a sudden turns on a dime. Turns on a dime. I'll read the second half of Psalm 22, and it's all positive. It's all just praise and worship. Here's what he says. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all of you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when, when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the, great, in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Man, that's, that's drastically different than the first half of the text, isn't it? The first half of the text, David's like, God, you've forsaken me, and where are you? And I cry out, and I don't hear you say anything, and then I'm in trouble, and there's nobody to help me. And, and then all of a sudden, he's like, but I praise you. You're amazing. I'm going to praise you all the days of my life. I trust in you. Like, 
Man, it's just a crazy different tone in the second half of the text. And here's what I asked myself this question as I read this text this week. Why is it that David continues to praise in the midst of his suffering and pain? Why does he, why does he do that? Well, I think the reality is this, that, that praise helps maintain perspective, doesn't it? Praise helps us maintain perspective. Praise helps remind us that our suffering is not the end of the story. Praise helps us remember that there is more, uh, there is more to come than what we are currently going through, what we are currently enduring. There is, there is more, that there is a sovereign God in the equation who is still on his throne and still in control, right? And that's unbelievably good news. Praise helps us maintain a proper perspective because hear me, we know, we know how the story ends. We know how the story ends. And so in the moments of suffering, like we can endure the suffering because, because we know that, that this, this is not all there is and that one day there's something beyond that, right? Um, I'll use this illustration because I've been waiting like 17 years to use it. Um, Austin and I, don't, we don't agree on everything. If you know both of us, you know that full well. There's a lot of stuff we don't agree on. Um, one thing we do agree on, we both love college football. I, I'm a huge college football fan. I actually like college football more than NFL football. Don't get me wrong, I, I'm a cowboy fan um, because I think Jesus is also, but I... I <laughs> I'm, a, I'm really a bigger college football fan. I, I love college football. And I know I'm going I'm, I'm to get a response from this, but Austin and I are both, uh, we're both Texas Longhorn fans, big Longhorn fans. There's the Aggies in the room. <laughs> Don't worry, there's a, there's a cult recovery meeting later y'all can go to. Um, we're big Longhorn fans. I've always lived within about an hour of Austin, and I've just been a, grew up being a, being a Longhorn fan. And so one thing we agree on is that the greatest college football game ever played was the 2005 National Championship game. That, that, I mean, ESPN did a ranking of like the greatest games ever, and that, of course, was number one. It's just an amazing game. It's an amazing game. And for those of you that don't know college football and don't really care, um, I'll just set it up for you this way and say that USC... Uh, they were the two-time defending national champions with two Heisman winners on their team. Um, they, were, they were an unbelievable team. Texas was going to California to play them, and most people thought that USC was just going to destroy uh, the Longhorns. And again, um, some of you, many of you saw the game, seen the game. Um, ultimately, the Longhorns go in, and it's this unbelievable game, and Longhorns end up winning the game. Now, here's the thing. <clears throat> Everything doesn't go right for the Longhorns in the game. A lot of bad stuff, actually, if you're a Longhorn fan, a lot of bad stuff happens in that game. There's turnovers. Texas turns the ball over several times. They miss field goals that should have been easy chip shot make field goals. They, they just missed them. At one point, two Texas defenders collide, and USC receiver scores a touchdown, putting USC up double digits, and those two defenders who are starters have to leave the game with injury. One of them broke his arm. And so there's a lot of stuff as we go, as you watch the game, a lot of stuff that goes wrong, it goes terrible, it goes bad for the Longhorns. But here's the thing, in spite of all of that, I have probably watched that game a hundred times, right? I've probably watched it a hundred times. It, it never gets old for me, right? I love that game because I know the ending, right? I know how it ends. Do y'all want, want to see how it ends? I, I think you do. I think, I think you do. This is how the game ends. Fourth and five, the national championship on the line right here. He's going for the corner. He's got it. Vince Young scores. 
And here's why. Because I know how it ends. I know how it ends, right? I can endure all the other stuff in the game. I can watch the whole game, all the fumbles, the missed field goals, the, the, the players getting injured and leaving and USC going up by double digits. I can watch the whole thing over and over and over again because I know the ending, right? Now, here's the thing. Four years later, Texas plays in another national championship game and they lose, right? They lose. Now, I have, you know, I've, I have never gone back and watched that game. <laughs> Not one time. Not one time have I gone back and watched Texas, Alabama, 2009. Because, because I know the ending of that one also, right? Like, here's the thing. The ending matters. The ending matters. Church, listen to me. The reason we can endure pain and hurt and trial and hardship and suffering in life is because, newsflash, we know the ending. We know the ending. And the ending is that Jesus dies on a cross and says, it is finished. And that one day our suffering and our pain and our hurt will be no more. That is victorious Christian living, okay? Victorious Christian living is not that you will not have suffering in your life. Victorious Christian living is that in spite of my suffering, Jesus died and was raised again, and that's where my victory is, right? That's the difference. That's a different message. That's the gospel. It's not, you know, just have a positive outlook and what you're going through doesn't matter. That doesn't work, right? That doesn't work. Because sometimes the hurt and the pain that we struggle through is real. It's a gut punch. It's hard to get through. And so knowing the end of the story matters. And David praises and he worships. Why? Because praise and worship helps us maintain perspective and we know the end of the story and that what we're going through is not all there is and that one day it's going to be better, right? Praise and worship helps us maintain perspective. Now, I mentioned that Psalm 22 is one of the most interesting psalms in all the Bible and it's not just interesting because of the drastic change in tone that takes place from the first half to the last half. The other thing that makes Psalm 22 so unbelievably interesting is, and you might have caught it as I read the first half of the psalm, and that is that ultimately this psalm is about Jesus and the cross. That's what it's about. It is actually written, if you read the first part, I'll I'll go back through a few points in a minute. The first part of Psalm 22, it's written from the perspective of Christ from the cross. Um, I've often heard it said that the prophets in the Old Testament, they, they look forward to the cross. And then the disciples, they're with Jesus in the Gospels, and they stand at the foot of the cross looking up to it. And then the, the apostles and the church, that's us, we stand and we sort of look back to the cross of Christ. But this is the only place in Scripture, Psalm 22, where we actually get the view of Jesus from the cross. And so, I'll go back through and just highlight a few big, big uh, phrases and statements that hopefully you'll remember this perspective. It starts out in verse 1 with the words of Jesus from the cross. David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said the same thing from the cross, quoted this, this passage. Verse 6, I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by mankind, despised by the people. The text uh, reminds, Scripture reminds us that Jesus was rejected and despised by man. It says that God had laid on him the iniquity of us all. A worm and not a man, despised and rejected by mankind. Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They spit on Jesus. They mocked Jesus. When he's hanging on the cross, he's being mocked mercilessly. Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. 
Let him rescue him. You remember they, they said the same thing to Jesus when he's hanging on the cross? They shouted insults at him. Oh, let, he says, God, let, let God save him. Same exact thing. Down in verse 11, uh, he says, there is none to help. Jesus was the only one that could go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. There was no one else that could do that. Only Jesus, perfect, sinless sacrifice. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan, they surround me. A reference to the powerful um, religious and political leaders that ultimately put Jesus on the cross. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. When someone was crucified, it often pulled their, their joints out of socket. It's talking about crucifixion. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. Jesus said, I thirst from the cross. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. A reference to the Roman soldiers that crucified Jesus. Verse 17, I count all my bones and they, they stare and they gloat over me. Jesus emaciated, beaten mercilessly before he ever went to the cross. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. That's what they did at the foot of the cross of Christ after he was crucified. You can walk through and see all these places in Psalm 22 and then the end, verse 31, I'll jump to that. It ends with that he has done it. In Hebrew, that can be translated, that it is finished. The last thing Jesus said on the cross before giving up his life. There are over 15 quotations and allusions in the New Testament to Psalm 22, more than any other psalm, more than any other text of Scripture. 15 different quotations and allusions from this one psalm in the New Testament. So much so that the early church called the beginning of Psalm 22 the fifth gospel or the Davidic gospel when they would read it over and over again. It's clearly about Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm. And here's the interesting thing. This was written a thousand years before Christ was ever born, hundreds of years before crucifixion was ever even invented as a means of execution. This shows the sovereignty of God, the validity of Scripture, all in Psalm 22. And there's some debate as to whether David, as he penned it, uh, knew that he was writing some sort of prophetic thing uh, about the future or not. Uh, we don't know that for sure. We have no idea. A uh, very real possibility he's writing about things going on in his own life. But what we do know, scholars say that some of these things about his hands and his feet being pierced and, and um, so, some of the detail that's in there, there is no you know, casting lots for his clothing and some of those kind of things. There is no historical reference to some of those things ever happening to David, Right? And so, ultimately, what I want to show you is that this psalm is about Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm. And so, as I read through the psalm, I'm just reminded that the gospel shows us, the gospel reminds us that God isn't really silent in our suffering, but in the cross, he's already spoken. In the cross, he's already spoken. In the person and work of Christ, in his great sacrifice, God has already spoken. And so, listen... I don't, I don't stand up here with like pithy Christian sayings and trying to, you know, if you're going through a season of struggling and suffering and hurt, trying to explain that away, I don't have simple answers for you. I just don't. But I can tell you that the cross has already spoken and thanks be to God that whatever you're going through is not the final word. It's not the final word. 
One of my Christian heroes um, passed away about a month ago. Uh, he was, um, I think, one of the greatest Christian uh, pastors, thinkers, authors um, of, of modern history, um, a guy named Tim Keller. Uh, many of you are familiar with Tim Keller and some of his works. I, I've quoted him often. Um, Austin's quoted him in sermons. And um, he was just a, a godly pastor. And he had cancer. And when he had the cancer diagnosis, and he was kind of battling that, it kind of reached a point where um, it was just really uncle- unclear. Uh, it looked like he was probably not going to win that battle. And he did a podcast um, just to, that he put out there. And I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't want to butcher the exact quote. But essentially, he just said, look, I don't know. I don't have a lot of answers. Like, I don't know what all this means. I don't know how much longer I have. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I, you know, he, he just, I don't know what heaven's going to be like. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff he's like, I just don't have answers for and I don't know. He said, but, but here's what I do know. I know that, that if Christ has been raised from the grave, and I believe that he has, and I believe all of the evidence points to the fact that he has, and if that's true that Christ has been raised from the grave, then what I do know is that everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And so, man, that's so simple, such a simple statement, but it just has, has just stuck with me over the last month or so. And I don't know what hurt and pain you bring in here today. I don't know what kind of suffering you have gone through, are going through. But I think that's such a valuable thing to remember, right? I don't have simple answers for you. I can't sit here and explain to you uh, why. I've done, sadly, funerals for many, many people, loved ones. I've done funerals for children. I don't have simple explanations when your heart just kind of gets ripped out and you get that gut punch. I don't know. I don't have a lot of answers. But I know this, that if Christ has been raised from the grave, and I believe that he has, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay. And that what you're currently struggling and wrestling with is not the end of the story. We know the end of the story, right? And it is good news. It is good news. Let's pray together. Father, today we just simply say thank you for the cross. Thank you, Jesus, that you went to a cross and that you gave up your life on that cross in our place for our sin. So God, we stand with the church, the universal church, and we look back to that pivotal moment in history, the most significant and important event in the history of the world. And we just stand in awe of the love and the grace displayed at the cross. And God, I pray for those that may be going through a season of hurt and pain and and struggle and suffering today. And God, those that maybe maybe that's not where they are right now, but life, life, God, reminds us that If if that's not where we are right now, it's where we will be one day. There will be seasons of hurt and pain and suffering. And I pray, God, that in those seasons and in those moments, Father, that we would remember the cross, that we would remember that you have spoken. We would remember that there is something bigger and something more than what we are currently enduring. And that that might be an encouragement to us to press on, to continue to worship, to continue to praise God, even in the valley. And so help us. Pray this today in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.